Hanukkah, dear friends. Here we are for another wonderful day of Torah Deep Dive. And once again, we are doing, we are doing here, give me a second here. Okay. And once again, we are doing a special holiday edition class. Today's class is not going to be about this week's Parsha, although it's a wonderful Parsha to talk about, but uh, we can only do one topic at a time. And we always give preferential treatment to uh, a holiday. And we are celebrating today the first of eight days of Hanukkah, such a beautiful holiday. And it is a holiday which needs to be understood and studied about because it's, uh, it's, it's such a powerful holiday. It really is. Um, the messages are so powerful. And sometimes the story of Hanukkah is a little bit too oversimplified. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you know, they wanted to kill us. We won. <laughs> let's eat. Let's eat donuts. There's a lot happening here in this story. It's a very deep moment of Jewish history. It, was a, it wasn't just another anti-Semite wants to kill us, another regime, another, another uh, tyranny. It was very unique. It was very unique. And I want to explore a little bit the power of the story of Hanukkah, its messages for us today, to try to distill down what exactly are we celebrating, but to do it through looking at the story through the woman of the story. And um, the reason why we're going to do this is because this is actually how our sages do it. We probably know more important women by name of the Hanukkah story than we know men. The only men we really know are, you know, the high priests, the Maccabees. We know multiple women by name who are heroines, who played critical uh, events of the Hanukkah story happened because of, were initiated by, woman and in that way this uh, this holiday is very very female based and i want to learn that with you the story of hanukkah from a woman's perspective the place of woman in hanukkah so dear friends let's begin on page three in our books and before we get into the story of hanukkah i want to read a law with you as it is written in the talmud the talmud writes this law and this is a very very central law in jewish practice this is from the talmud Kiddushin, page 29a, some mitzvot women are obligated in, some mitzvot women are not obligated in. And the same is true for men, by the way. Some mitzvahs don't apply to men. When, what is the rule? What mitzvot do apply and which mitzvot don't apply to women? Says the Talmud, source one, all positive time-bound mitzvot are obligatory for men, but not women. Oh. If it's a time-bound mitzvah, only men. All positive mitzvot that are not time-bound are obligatory for both men and women. A mitzvah that's not limited to a specific time, oh, then it applies to men and women. All prohibitions, whether they are time-bound or not, are obligatory for both men and women. This is the way it works. Every negative commandment, which means any prohibition, do not murder. Of course, there's not a single prohibition in the Torah that doesn't apply across the board. But when there's a mitzvah to do something, which we call a positive mitzvah, it, it depends. If it's time-bound, women, it's optional for women. They're not obligated. So what's an example of a time-bound mitzvah? An example of a time-bound mitzvah 
I'm saying there's so many. <laughs> um, but just for example, making Kiddush on Friday night. We're going to have a mitzvah to, in, to welcome the Shabbos by making Kiddush. That's a mitzvah. That mitzvah doesn't apply to women. Why? Because it's time, it's limited to a specific time. Reciting the Shema in the morning and the evening, it's a mitzvah. Say the Shema in the morning and the evening. That mitzvah is a very specific time period when you're supposed to do the mitzvah. There's specific hours in the morning. It's nighttime. So that is a mitzvah that is only obligated to men. But then there's all the mitzvahs which are not time-bound, like putting up a mezuzah. Putting up a mezuzah is 24-7. Oh, women have that mitzvah as well. This is the rule across the board. Every single mitzvah, it's an easy formula to remember. Time-bound, not obligated to women. If it's not bound by any time, then women have that mitzvah as well. Here's the interesting thing. Based on this logic, would the mitzvah of lighting the menorah apply to women as well? We have here this, uh, this rule. So following this logic, following the formula of this rule, would it apply to women? Well, Hanukkah is a time-bound mitzvah. You don't light the menorah in the summer or in the spring. You light menorah only eight days of the year. And even in those eight days, there's a specific time when you light it. So seemingly, the mitzvah of Hanukkah does not apply to women. Which there comes the shocker. The shocker is, the Talmud says, no, 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 no. Hanukkah is different. Hanukkah, women have a mitzvah to light the menorah as well, even though it's a time-bound mitzvah. But for this mitzvah, we got to make an exclusion. This mitzvah has to apply to women as well. And therefore, going against the rule, the mitzvah of lighting the menorah applies to women as well. So let us read now the next text from the Rebbe, from the talk from the Rebbe. That the idea that women are obligated in the mitzvah of Hanukkah candles. Says the Rebbe, the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles obligates women as well. As the Talmud states, women are obligated to kindle Hanukkah candles because they were part of the miracle. Oh. Women in a very, very specific way or part of the miracle of Hanukkah, and therefore we can't not have women here getting the full obligation of the mitzvah to celebrate the miracle. And the rabbi says there are two elements to this. In what way were women part of the miracle? Two elements. Number one, A, the decree was especially aimed against them. As Maimonides says, the Greeks stole their money and their women. Rashi also explains this. There was, when the Greeks came, the Seleucids, right? The Syrian Greeks, the Seleucid Empire. When they came and targeted the Jews, there was the specifically targeted Jewish woman. They didn't just come after the collective of the Jewish people. They came after the Jewish woman. They came after the Jewish daughters. So we see that, number one, they suffered the most. Okay, and point B, the salvation from the decree came about through a woman. Who brought the miracle happen? Which is so interesting, right? We all know the story, Judah Maccabee. But one second, if you actually look in the classical Jewish texts, and you could see all these sources quoted here in footnote number five on the bottom of the page, who initiated the salvation? The most critical moments of the miracle of Hanukkah came about through the Jewish women who are suffering the most. And the Rebbe says, for this reason, women are obligated to light the Hanukkah candles, even though it is a time-bound mitzvah 
from which women are usually exempt. For this reason, because they suffered, they were targeted the most, and B, the salvation came through them, therefore the Talmud says we're going to give this mitzvah as an obligation to women as well. So dear friends, let us learn a little bit the history, the way it's recorded in the classical Jewish sources, of what does this mean? What is the story? What is the history? How did women suffer the most? How did the salvation come through women? Let us learn a little bit of the history of Hanukkah, specifically the woman's role in it, and we'll also learn a little bit more about the exact nature. What was the nature of this anti-Semitism, of this oppression that came from King Antiochus the Fourth, right? Antiochus Epiphanes, the, from the Seleucid Empire. Okay, so let's go deeper into the story. We'll begin with the Talmud, and then we'll see the Midrash, the teachings of the sages. So, on page four, source number two from the Talmud. As Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi said, women are obligated in lighting the Hanukkah light, as they too were included in that miracle. Okay, how are they included in that miracle? Says Rashi, and here we're going to have the first clue of the story here. They were in that miracle, comments Rashi, since the Greeks decreed upon all the women getting married that they must first cohabitate with the Greek officer. In addition, the miracle happened through a woman. So here we see these two ideas. They suffered and the miracle came through them, but Rashi gives us a detail. What's the detail? There was a decree, one of the Greek decrees, one of the oppressive and horrible and abusive draconian decrees of the, of the Greeks was they made a rule in all of Judea. You want to get married? No problem. But a Jewish woman on the night of her wedding doesn't get to spend that night with her husband, with her new husband. She has to spend the night with a Greek officer. After that, no problem. Go, go ahead and live a happy life with your husband. But the first night... You spend with a Greek officer. Now, why do they make this decree? Why do they make this decree? Some historians actually say that it was quite common in those days. Certain empires had a rule that every single uh, virgin woman needs to uh, uh, spend the night first with, uh, with, with, you know, with, the, with the emperor, with the king, whatever it was. You know, this was right crazy times those days. <clears throat> but there's something deeper going on over here. Why, you know... The Greeks, you also have to appreciate, the Greeks were not a, 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 a barbaric enemy of the Jews. They were very highly civilized, a very civilized people, very progressive. Uh, they were leaders in the arts, the Olympics. The Olympics come from the Greeks, <laughs> from the Syrian Greeks. Um, they have philosophy, that real culture, and they really considered themselves to be a, a highly developed people. So why would they go? What, what's behind this targeting of a young woman on their wedding night? You've got to spend an evening uh, uh, before you can be intimate with your husband. Spend that evening with a Greek officer. So let's learn the Midrash. And this is called Midrash Hanukkah, a collection of the teachings of our sages that record the story of Hanukkah. And this will really give us a lot of insight into what exactly was happening in those times. And what was really behind the oppression from the Greeks? Source three on page number four. The decree of the Greeks. The sages taught. During the days of the wicked Greek empire, they decreed upon the Jewish people the following. Here were some specific decrees against the Jews. Number one. Anyone who has a bolt in his house should engrave on it 
that the haters of Israel, which is a euphemism for the Jews, I don't know why it says it that way, but basically all the Jews have to write that they have no share in the God of Israel. The bolt of your home needs to have engraved in it saying, I don't have God. I don't have a God. The Jewish people immediately went and uprooted the bolts from their houses. <laughs> so the Jews found a way out of it. What did they do? Oh, you, you, you know, if I don't have a bolt, then I don't, then I don't need to do this. So they removed the bolts from their houses. Now I don't have a bolt, so I can't get in trouble for not inscribing my bolt with this message. Number two, they further decreed that everyone who owns an ox should write on its horn that the haters of Israel have no part in the God of Israel. The Jewish people went and sold their oxen. Next decree, right on the horn of your ox. You know, yeah, I don't understand exactly why the Greek mind decided that this was the best way to record uh, the Jewish proclamation that we have no share in the God of Israel, but write it on the horns of your ox. So Jews said, okay, we're selling all of our oxen. We don't want to write it. Decree number three, they further decreed that the men should cohabitate with their wives while they were in a state of nida. The Jewish people went and separated from their wives. There's a mitzvah in the Torah which is called the mitzvah of family purity. And the mitzvah of family purity is the mitzvah regulating the intimate life between husband and wife. That it should be done with purity, and there's laws of purity and impurity in Judaism. And according to the Torah, there's a mitzvah, which is at the very center of the holiness of the home, that while a woman uh, has her menses, she enters into a state of what's called spiritual impurity, and there should not be any intimacy between a man and, and his wife during this time. It's a few days of the menstrual cycle, it's a few days of the menses, then there's a few days a week, which is the countdown of what's called pure days. The woman could then go to a mikvah, and once the woman emerges from the mikvah, she's considered pure, and the intimacy between husband and wife continues. The Greeks came and said, no more of this shtick. We're shutting down the mikvahs. That's what they did. They went and found every single mikvah in Israel and they boarded it down. They, they, they destroyed it. So what happened? They literally, Jewish people, said, okay, if we cannot, if there's no way for us to be intimate with our wives because she can't go to mikvah, we can't be intimate anymore. And our sages say that there was, there was mass separation. Men and women, uh, married men and women, were not being intimate with each other, which you can only imagine the, the pain that this caused the Jewish people. A woman caught going to a mikvah was punishable by death. And by the way, this was something which also happened in Soviet Russia. The Soviets, and especially the, uh, the, the Jewish, it was called the, the, Jewish, the Jewish group uh, of the, of the, uh, of the uh, Communist Party, they, want, they, this, they specifically targeted this mitzvah, the mitzvah of nida, that there should not be any more, the mitzvah family purity should be forbidden to go to a mikvah. They destroyed all the mikvahs. And this was number three. And number four, they further decreed that before anyone marries a woman, the woman must first cohabitate with the ruler and only then be given to her husband. 
right? This is what we just learned before. On the wedding night, that woman must be turned in to the Greek officials. She spends an evening there. And then the next morning, she could return uh, to her husband and could, you know. Now, before we go on, let's try to understand what is the common theme here. What do the Greeks want and what are they trying to get at? So we see they have two laws against belief in God. They don't want belief in God. And then there's two decrees specifically targeting the intimate life of a woman. Very interesting. What, 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 what are their interests? What are they trying to get after? And this is what takes us back to what I mentioned earlier, that there's a very big misunderstanding of what exactly was the, was the nature of the oppression of the Greeks against the Jewish people in the story of Hanukkah. They didn't come to kill us. It's very interesting. The, our, these enemies came with tremendous friendship. The way it worked is under the Seleucid Empire, and you could look at a map there, they had a, they had a tremendous empire. The way it worked was they uh, actually wanted... Uh, in a certain way, they respected all of the people that, they, uh, that they've come to take over their land, all the people within their empire, and they wanted to lift everybody up. We want to create, we are the future of the world. We have the arts, we have the science, we have the philosophy, we have the culture. Greek culture was all the rage. We want this culture to be spread throughout the world. We want to share it with you. And we want to lift everybody up to join the cutting-edge culture of Greek culture. So these were very highly civilized people that had a real culture to themselves. They considered themselves to be uh, both very smart and also very, very just, uh, very cultured, very aristocratic, very, um, very, very rich, a very rich culture, very rich lifestyles. Um, and the, 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 it wasn't a peasant lifestyle. It was, a, it was like an upper-class lifestyle. And they valued it they really uh, saw tremendous value in it, and they wanted to share it with the world. They wanted the world to learn from us. And what they did, the Greek Empire, was they would personally sponsor the upgrading of every single city that they came to conquer. If you were under the Seleucid Empire, it was a gift. We're going to go and build you brand new roads and bridges and theaters. We're going to make your cities to be uh, the the the, you know, the most beautiful cities in the world. They didn't come with a message of oppression. They really came with a message of uh, uh, we are the future. Welcome to the future, and let us come in and and uh, and show you the way. When they came to the Jewish people with that offer, many Jews, unfortunately. Uh, accepted the offer and they said you know this is tempting and the Greeks even said you could still be Jewish you could still be Jewish but you know let's pull you a little bit out of uh, uh, the the primitive lifestyle that you have you're a little bit too primitive let's keep the good parts of your culture but let's get away with the bad parts of your culture and this was called the Hellenism right the Hellenism of the cultures that existed before the Greek Empire arrived, and then they Hellenized. This was the process of Hellenizing uh, all their, uh, uh, all the inhabitants of their empire. But then there came what was called the Jewish problem. 
many Jews did not want to buy into Greek culture. They just said, you know, we got Judaism. And, of course, a lot of Greek culture was, was, is not in line with Jewish values and even goes against the Torah. And many Jews resisted. And what the Greeks said was, listen, we don't mind Judaism, but you got to get rid of your faith. You have to get rid of this fundamentalism, this idealistic connection with God that transcends logic. And the Greeks challenged the Jews. Anything that you could explain rationally to us, we're in. Anything that you do that makes no sense, we're out, and we got to get rid of it. And if you look at every single area that the Greeks targeted the Jews, it was always in the areas of the faith that transcends everything and the parts of Judaism that seem to just not make any sense. Not only they don't make sense, but they take away human pleasure. Why are you living so backwards? Why are you allowing a faith that you can't even explain yourself to stop you from living a cultured, beautiful, fun lifestyle? That was everything. So the first things the Greeks did was keep Judaism, but keep it a culture. Get rid of God. Stop living in this world where God dictates your life. Look at Judaism as a culture that you could enjoy, but get rid of the faith. And that was the first thing you see over here. Write it on your door. Write it on your property. Write it on your animals. We are not a people that are bound by a faith to God. We don't have a share in God. We have a beautiful Torah. There's great wisdom there. There's great traditions there. There's great logic there. That's it. But the faith, get rid of that. And they also really went after the intimate lives, the sexual lives of the Jews. They said, you guys are so behind. You guys don't know how to live it up. And they saw that as wrong. Why are you denying yourselves the pleasures of life? Why don't you join our parties? Why don't you join our clubs? Instead, you're living a life that you're married and there's a period of time every month where you can't even be intimate with each other because of some laws that make no sense at all. A woman becomes impure, pure. You got to go into a mikvah. What are you talking about? There's too much faith here. So they wanted to stop that. Let's uproot this deep faith that's just holding the Jews back. And the same thing, they targeted young women, young Jewish pure women on their wedding night. And they said, before you enter marriage, let us show you what it means to have fun. Let us show you the decadence, the pleasure, the fun that could be experienced now that you're entering and exploring the intimate lifestyle. We'll show it to you before you begin your life as a, as a young married woman. This was what they were after. They said, we don't want to kill you. But we now rule this part of planet Earth. And things have to make sense. Things got to be cultured. We are not allowing backwards primitive practices to be allowed in our property. This is also why they targeted circumcision. A very big part of Greek culture, you even see it in all their statues. They loved human physique. They loved uh, uh, muscular-looking people. Um, they would, in general, dress very, uh, uh, very, very minimally. Um, all the sports were done in the nude, right? We celebrate the beauty and the strength of the human body. And then the Jews come and you're tampering with the human body? 
That's horrible. You know, this, this went against one of the most important parts of Greek culture. This was what the fight was about. They said, keep Judaism, no problem. But you got to throw away the faith. you got to throw away the idealism. you got to throw away the sanctity of it. There's nothing holy here. It's a nice culture. You want to keep up a culture from a thousand years ago? We're good with that. We like culture. But, 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 but stop being tied down as if there's a God, as if there's rules. That's what they were against. Let's continue the story. Page number five. The Medrash says something unbelievably shocking, and you just have to realize what, what, what level of oppression and how powerless the Jews felt for this long. How many Jewish women had to suffer? Let's, let's listen to these words. Page five. The protest of the Maccabee sister. They practiced this for three years and eight months until the daughter of Yohanan the high priest was married. Just let's stop there. Three and a half years, Jewish women are getting married and the Jews feel powerless. And the Greek soldiers are there at the wedding and they're there, they celebrate, they drink wine at the wedding and then when it's over, they say, okay, you're coming with us. And the Jews just, they felt they didn't have an option. Just just the level of abuse that was happening here. The, 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 the defilement. Of, of Jewish, young Jewish women en masse that's happening over here. And the Jews did nothing. Until comes the wedding night of the daughter of Yochanan the high priest. Who's Yochanan? Yochanan is the father of Matasyahu. Matasyahu is the one who begins the, uh, the uh, Maccabean rebellion. So this is Matasyahu's sister, her wedding night. Judah the Maccabees' aunt. All right, you're starting to see the family picture over here. When they wanted to take her to that ruler, she exposed her head and tore her clothes in front of the people. Can you imagine a young bride? And according to Jewish law, once a married woman supposed to cover her natural hair. And she exposes herself. She exposes her hair and she exposes her body in front of the entire wedding, uh, in front of this whole community of Jews. When they're ready to take her away at her wedding, she exposes herself. Judah and his brothers were outraged by her conduct. The family is shocked. What's she doing over here? And they said, take her out to be burned. Right? How how could a Jew act this way? That's what they said, take her out to be burned. She then said to him, I would rather be humiliated in front of my brothers and friends than be humiliated in the eyes of this impure person that you wish to violate me by abandoning me to lie with him. Ooh, what a forceful message. She says, you're getting bothered that I am exposing myself, that I'm humiliating myself here in front of fellow Jews? How dare you lecture me on that? You are willing to let me be humiliated by leaving me with with this evil Greek leader will be able to abuse me sexually tonight. And you've allowed this to happen for three and a half years. Why is nobody standing up? Ooh. When she said this, it uh, it made a mark. It, it shook the Jews out of complacency. The Jews just felt, you know, what could we do? This, the Greek Empire, we're supposed to fight back. If this is the decree, this is the decree. We just got to ride out the wave. But, the, but she sparked, 
she sparked the 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 intolerance to this we, we can't let this happen how could you let this happen to me how are you just standing by idly as this happens and she inspired the uprising let's continue to read the beginning of the uprising when judah and his colleagues heard this they conspired together to kill the ruler oh they realized something has to be done so let's say they said okay we got to kill this ruler they immediately dressed the young woman in royal clothing and made a canopy of myrtle from the hasmonean house to the house of the ruler they said you know what let's let's uh we'll trick them so they dress the woman beautifully and they don't let her go there begrudgingly they make as if we're bringing her willingly and with celebration there were harpists fiddlers and singers and they sang and danced until they came to the ruler's house can you imagine you're the ruler here and all of a sudden you know usually the jews begrudgingly allow their young jew jewish woman to go to this ruler for the evening but now they're going with all the celebration so what happens when the ruler heard this he said to his ministers and his servants look at these people from the greatest of israel and from the descendants of aaron the priest how great how happy they are to do my will they are worthy of great honor he ordered his ministers and servants to leave judah and his companions entered the ruler's house with his sister and they cut off his head and plundered all of his belongings they killed his ministers and servants and completely obliterated the greeks except for the main part of the kingdom this was one of the very first acts of resistance that judah the maccabee did they were inspired it wasn't a well-planned event but they said we got to do something she's right she's right we can't let this happen we got to show resistance and this was one of the first acts inspired by this young jewish woman okay what happens let's continue the story bottom of page five the jewish people back in the city they hear about the news what happens they're not happy they were trembling in fear for those jewish men what's going to be are they going to be successful are they not going to be successful who knows what the retaliation is going to be a heavenly voice emerged and proclaimed the young men who went to fight in antioch won those who fought against the king antiochus they won a voice came from heaven notifying all the jews that the mission was successful the fighters returned and closed the gates and did penance and engaged in Torah and charitable deeds they right away knew that difficult times are ahead so they prayed to god they fortified themselves with spiritual protection okay page six when the king of the greeks heard that the jewish people killed his representative he gathered his entire nation and laid siege to jerusalem causing the jewish people to be very afraid okay this is really where things are heating up at the beginning judea is a little province at the edge of the seleucid empire so the greeks didn't have a whole force there they had a governor and you know they, they had a government there it wasn't a whole army but when the jews all of a sudden revolted in such a strong way they literally killed all the great rulers the ministers the governor when the king of the greeks heard this he said okay now we gotta go now now's where the show and the war really begins and here we we learn about our second jewish heroine page six judith's heroism heroism there was a widow named judith yuhudit who took her maidservant and went to the gates of jerusalem so this is already when jerusalem was under siege there's already a massive greek army that has come to solve the jewish problem okay so there's a woman named judith 
She said to the guards, let me go out. Perhaps God will do a miracle through me. They opened the gates for her and she went out. She went before the king and he said to her, what would you like? And she said, Master, I am a daughter of great Jewish people and my brothers are prophets. I heard them prophesying that tomorrow Jerusalem will fall into your hands. When the king heard this, he rejoiced greatly. The king believed Judith and fell in love with her and said to her, would you like to marry me? And she said to him, my lord, the king, I am not worthy of even one of your servants. But since your heart is so inclined, make a proclamation throughout the camp that anyone who sees two women walking by the spring should not harm them as I must go there to bathe and immerse myself. Immediately the proclamation was sent out and that is what she did. The king followed by making a great feast and the people drank and became inebriated. All right, so she's making a whole ruse. She tells her that, look, um, I know that you're going to win, so I'm coming here to basically uh, uh, defect from the Jews and join you. And uh, she came in a very charming way. That was part of her ruse. And uh, he was attracted to her, so he says, let's get married. And uh, they make a whole party. And there's a lot of drinking happening at the party. All right, this is all part of the plan. And she gets the king to announce that she has open passage throughout the camp and that nobody should question her or stop her. Then what happens? Continues the Midrash. They each went to their tents. Right? Okay, party's over. Everybody goes to their tents. And the king went to sleep. Judith followed him and took his sword and cut off his head and spread a sheet over it. She went with the king's head to the gates of Jerusalem and said, Open the gates for me, for God has already done a miracle through me. They said to her, Is it not enough that you defiled yourself? <laughs> the Jewish guards don't want to let her back in. Look at you. You've defected from us. You went to spend the night with a, with a Greek officer, with a Greek king. But you are coming to us with a conspiracy, so now you're going to come back in and somehow conspire against us? So immediately she showed them the head of the king. And as soon as they saw it, they opened the gates and proclaimed loudly, Hear, O Israel, God is our Lord, God is one. Shema Yisrael, Hashem lokeinu Hashem echad. This was another one of the very important moments of resistance that crushed the resolve of the Greek uh, enemy. That the I don't think it was a king, but it was it was one of the highest generals that the Jews were able to behead him, and they were able to say, "Look, you know that this this is this is what we were able to do." And what happens then? The enemies flee. We're on top of page seven. When the Greeks heard this, they said, "Soon they will be coming for us." Look at this. The Jews successfully were able to infiltrate that deeply. And they were able to kill the general. They went to the king and found him headless. A terror and fear fell upon them and they all fled. The Jewish people pursued them and killed many of them. So may the Almighty take revenge on our enemies speedily and grant us salvation as is written and a Redeemer shall come to Zion. So the Midrash concludes with a little hope for ourselves as well. That the same way the Jews were able to inflict such a fear and win over this specific battle against this specific uh, battalion or a force of the Greek army, so may it be in our days. Okay. What do we see here? This is a long Midrash we just learned. We see here the theme that not only women were included in the story of Hanukkah, of course women were included. You know, when, when, were, when were women not included in any form of anti-Semitism or oppression? 
but they were specifically part of the story. They were specifically targeted, and they specifically did some of the most important moments in the story. Who inspired the Maccabees to start taking a stand? It was a woman, a young Jewish woman. Who did one of the most important acts of resistance that succeeded in hurting the resolve and the strength of the Greek, of the Greek army? A Jewish woman, Yehudit, Judith. And we see that the Talmud celebrates this. We want to make sure women are part of the story of Hanukkah. They have the mitzvah as well. We want to recognize them. In fact, it says that while the candles are lit, according to Jewish law, a woman, a woman is not supposed to do any work, just like on a holiday. It's a special time for them. Take off. Enjoy the holiday. You're not allowed to do any housework. Uh, no, nothing which is not part of the holiday. When the menorah is lit, women specifically need to celebrate it. Because this, in a certain way, was a salvation, especially for women. Says the Rebbe now, on page, middle of page 7, we will now explain the deeper reason for why the salvation of Hanukkah came about specifically through a woman, thereby obligating women in the mitzvah. Okay, the Rebbe says, but I want to understand this a little bit better. I understand that historically it happened to be that women were targeted. And it happened to be that women did some of the most important moments uh, in driving the story of Hanukkah. But let's try to understand that conceptually. What is the connection between the holiday and woman? What is the significance of this? What is the symbolism of it? The Rebbe says it's not just coincidental. Okay, it happened to be that a woman did a few good things and now we give them focus for the holiday. No, in a certain way, Hanukkah is more connected with women than men. There's a special connection between Hanukkah and the Jewish woman. The spirit of Hanukkah is a spirit of Jewish woman. And that is why they're so central in the story. That's why they're so central in the mitzvah. So the Rebbe says like this. We first need to understand, in general, how could it be? Let's try to understand a little bit more the attitude of the Jews at that time, the attitude of the Maccabees, which is really what we're celebrating, the spirit of the Jewish people. So Rebbe says a very interesting question, top of page 8, which gets down to the very heart of the attitude of the Jews at that time. Says the Rebbe, page 8, first we must address the question, of the Jewish people risking their lives in the war against the Greeks. According to Jewish law, it seems that they were not obligated to risk their lives because the Greek decrees did not affect any of the cardinal sins which we are obligated to risk our lives to avoid violating. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that a Jew must give up their life for God if need be. That mitzvah is called Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying the name of God. But here's the catch. That mitzvah only applies to three commandments. Which means a Jew is expected to die only for three mitzvahs in the entire Torah. The belief in one God, or the sin of idolatry, the sin of adultery, and the sin of murder. Here's the interesting thing the Rebbe says. Who gave the right to the Maccabees? Where did they find the justification within Judaism, within Jewish law, 
to put their lives in danger by starting a rebellion against the Greek army. Generally speaking, most of the things that the Greeks were coming after did not include these three uh, violations. Most Jews, if they wanted to, could have, in a certain way, kept a low profile. And just like other times of religious persecution, ride out the wave and hope for better times. But the Maccabees didn't just... Uh, keep a low profile. The Maccabees went all out, putting their own lives on the line, putting the lives of Jews on the line. Is that justified according to Judaism? There's only three mitzvahs that you're meant to give up your life for, and even then, you don't try to give up your life, only if necessary, only if there's no other choice, you say, I'm willing to be killed not to violate these three prohibitions. But the Maccabees are now beginning an active revolt putting every single Jew who is fighting, and in general, all the entire Jewish community, in danger. If you think about it, what is the justification in Jewish law? <clears throat> well, the real truth is, <clears throat> if you look at Jewish law, it says like this. Let's look at source number five on page nine. All right, I want to jump to, to source five on page nine. Maimonides says that's true. The mitzvah to give up your life for God only applies to three mitzvahs but only with one, with one little caveat. Let's read Source 5. This is from Maimonides' Code of Jewish Law. Maimonides writes, Source 5, the Rambam writes, All the above distinctions only apply in times other than times of a decree. Uh, regularly speaking, like, for example, today in America, 2023, generally speaking, we don't face these challenges, but if there's a Jew who is put to the test where it's either die or violate one of these three prohibitions, idolatry, adultery, and murder, a Jew has to give up their life, but only for those three. But Maimonides rules. However, in times of a decree, in times of religious persecution, for example, when a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, or his like, will arise and issue a decree against the Jewish people to nullify their faith or one of the mitzvot, one should sacrifice one's life rather than transgress any of the other mitzvot. Whether one is compelled to transgress amidst ten Jews, or one is compelled to transgress merely amidst Gentiles. Says Maimonides, that when it comes to a time of religious persecution, the mitzvahs of Jews give their life even for the smallest mitzvah. And this was why, you see this throughout, throughout life, throughout Jewish history. In times of religious persecution, Jews were willing to die to not violate the smallest mitzvah. Generally speaking, a Jew is not supposed to die for Shabbos. If it's a question of life and death, violate Shabbos. Don't die. Oh, but if, it, but if there's religious persecution, then any mitzvah they want you to violate, you have to stand strong for, even if it means death. But the Rebbe says, but even this explanation... You know, the times of Hanukkah was definitely a time of religious persecution. But the Rebbe says, even this explanation, even this law of Maimonides, doesn't explain the, Macca the Maccabean revolt. Says, Let's go to, ten, to page 10, top of page 10. The Rebbe says, but there is still room to question whether the Jewish people were obligated to go to war over this. When the law states, be killed and don't transgress, 
This doesn't mean that if a person is being forced to violate, sorry, this means that if a person is being forced to violate a prohibition, he's obligated to give up his life. But this doesn't seem to mandate launching a war against the evil kingdom in order to abolish the decrees. We therefore require an explanation for why the Jewish people went to war against the Greeks, risking their lives in a way that wasn't all obligatory. The Rebbe is saying, according to Jewish law, a Jew has to give up their life for the main three mitzvot. And if it's a time of religious persecution, a Jew is expected to give up his life for any mitzvah. But the Rebbe says, but still, what the Jews could have done at those times, which indeed which is what the Maccabees did, flee the cities. They went to hide out in the hills, in the Judean hills, away from the watchful eyes of the Greek enemy. Practice Judaism there. But to start putting your lives on the line, to start a war and fight against the Greek emperor, why do they do this? Where does this come from? And the Rebbe says, oh, here we see the attitude of the Maccabees. The attitude of the Maccabees were, we are going above and beyond the call of duty. Even if we don't need to fight back, even if we have good excuses, we are not going to let Judaism slip away without putting up a fight, even if we are not obligated to put up that fight. Let's read page 11, and this is really the essence of Hanukkah. Such a powerful idea. Says the Rebbe, page 11, we can suggest the following explanation. During the Hanukkah period, there was a decree that targeted the purity of Jewish family life. What what were the Greeks against? Specifically the purity. The purity of the Jews. The purity of the Jewish family. This is a matter in which the sanctity of the Jewish people at the time and for all subsequent generations is dependent. You don't play around with these mitzvahs. The Jewish home, the sanctity of the Jewish home is the bedrock of the Jewish people. It is the pillar that holds up Judaism throughout all the generations. Therefore, the Jewish people people made no calculations about whether risking their lives was obligatory or not. And they embarked on a war beyond any rhyme or reason in order to protect and guarantee the sanctity of the Jewish people. The Maccabees did not fight out of a call of duty. They weren't obligated. The Maccabean uh, 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 um, conviction was so deep. They said, we are not going to tolerate the slightest compromise when it comes to the sanctity of our homes, when it comes to the sanctity of our children, when it comes to the sanctity of the Jewish woman, this is the holy of holies, the holiness, the purity that will be within the Jewish home. We're going to fight for that. So they didn't do it because Jewish law obligated them to fight. The Maccabees could have sat back and just let the bad oppression You know, it was a phase. Hopefully somebody will murder Antiochus, just like what happened to every Roman emperor and Greek king. Okay, he's around now. Within three, four, five years, he'll be dead. A new king will come, and hopefully times will be good, just like it used to be before this king. The Jews didn't need to do this act of rebellion. They did it because they would not allow a compromise in the holiness of the Jewish people. So they went above and beyond, even above and beyond the obligation of the Torah. The Torah did not mandate them to go to war. They still did it. They also went above and beyond logic. 
Makes no sense. <laughs> How are you going to win the Greek Empire? It's crazy. It was the most ridiculous thing you could say. It's the greatest army in the world. And you Jews are a bunch of, what are you? <laughs> what are the Jews? You know, today in, in, all the, uh, in all the art depictions of the Maccabees, they look like muscular, right? Like warriors. I promise you the Maccabees did not look like warriors. They look like a bunch of overweight, <laughs> uh, you know, very not good-looking Jews. They didn't have any art. They, 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 they were a bunch of guerrilla fighters. They had nothing. But they went to fight with this conviction of, we got to do what we got to do. And we are, they were fighting for one thing and one thing only. They weren't fighting for the survival of the Jewish people. The Greeks didn't want to kill anybody. The Greeks didn't come with, with murderous intent. They were fighting for the sanctity of the Jewish home, the sanctity of the Jewish family unit. That's it. And when you fight for that, they went above and beyond. And this is something which even Jewish law recognizes as a value. Let's read Source 6, which is one of the most important commentaries on the Maimonides we just learned. Page 11, Source 6. Maimonides is of the opinion that when the Talmud states that one should transgress and not be killed, it means that one must transgress so as not to be killed. Meaning, you don't need to actively seek to be killed, but just... Sorry... But many other great authorities, uh, this will explain, but many other great authorities maintain that if the person allowed themselves to be killed rather than transgress, it is considered a righteous act. Oh. Even though the Torah says you're allowed to violate this mitzvah and not be killed, but if you do want to be killed for this mitzvah, especially in a time of religious persecution, the understanding is that that's considered a righteous act. It seems that they explain the command, transgress and do not get killed, as mere permission to transgress, but not as a requirement. And it is written in the Nimuke Yosef that even according to Maimonides' opinion, a great and pious person who fears God and sees that the generation is completely disregarding the proposed transgression, they may sanctify God's name and sacrifice himself even for a simple mitzvah, so that the people will see and learn to fear God and love them with all their hearts. So there is room for this attitude of going above and beyond even what the Torah demands. You know, even when the Torah says you don't need to put yourself in harm's way, you're allowed to transgress, go beyond. And the Rebbe says, who inspired this attitude that we do not compromise and we go all out when it comes to the sanctity of the Jews? Who did that? The woman. Page, page 12. The Rebbe says, this was achieved, this attitude was brought to the Jewish people by the Jewish woman of that generation. In addition to the Jewish women themselves resisting the Greeks in non-obligatory self-sacrifice like the men, the Jewish, woman, the Jewish women were the ones that inspired the men to feel the need for super-rational self-sacrifice and to rebel against the Greeks' military. The women were the ones who inspired the men to fight for this cause. Since this unique form of self-sacrifice during the Hanukkah era, which is a sacrifice beyond any reason, was inspired by the Jewish woman, they also merited that the miracle of salvation came about through a woman.
This was the gift, the attitude that, was, that the woman brought to the table. We cannot, even a valid compromise, we cannot accept compromise when it comes to the purity of the Jewish home, the purity of the family unit. And the Rebbe's now, we're just going to conclude, and I'll do this a little bit quickly, the Rebbe connects this with the miracle of the oil, which is, of course, at the essence of the Hanukkah story. It's the same concept. We don't compromise when it comes to the purity of the Jewish people. Middle of page 12. The super-rational reward for super-rational sacrifice. Says the Rebbe, as the Jewish people acted with self-sacrifice beyond reason, God rewarded them measure for measure beyond nature. The same attitude of going above and beyond, beyond logic, beyond reason, even beyond Jewish law, God rewarded them in the exact same way. God showed that they made the right, the right choice, that it was appreciated, the conviction of the Jews. Says the Rebbe, there were two super rational elements in the story. A, the military victory over the Greeks was totally supernatural. There's no way to explain in military terms how the Jews were able to defeat the Greeks. It was an absolute total miracle beyond nature. And B, the finding of the jug of pure oil and the subsequent miracle that the oil lasted for eight days. What was the miracle of the oil? I was going to say something very, very interesting. According to Jewish law, the Maccabees could have used the defiled oil. This is a question that comes up in Jewish law. According to the Jewish law, to light the menorah in the temple, you need pure olive oil. And this is according to Jewish law, there's a whole genre of laws called the laws of purity and impurity, which these laws don't make any sense. There's no way to explain these, these, these laws uh, by, by the laws of physics. Purity is purely a spiritual phenomenon. According to Jewish law, oil must be pure. What did the Greeks do when they came into the Holy Temple? They didn't destroy the oil. They didn't crack all the jugs and spill all the oil out. They kept all the oil intact. They just removed the seal of purity. They said, we want Jews to light a menorah, but with impure oil. We don't mind Jewish women getting married, but let's take away their purity. This was the whole agenda of the Greeks. And according to Jewish law, the Jews could have lit the menorah with impure oil. It's clear in Jewish law. If there's no pure oil, Okay, best case scenario, light it with impure oil. But the Maccabees said, no, we're fighting for purity. We're not going to accept a compromise, even a compromise that Jewish law allows us to accept, which is an amazing concept. Let's read. Top of page 13. There is a question that needs to be addressed regarding the oil. The law is that impurity is allowed for the public, meaning that when the public as a whole is impure, their state of impurity can be ignored and they may go about the regular temple service. You're allowed to be impure for temple service, for the need of the public. If so, the Jewish people should have been allowed to kindle the menorah using the impure oil and shouldn't have needed the miracle of finding the one pure jug. <laughs> this whole story wasn't necessary. The Jews aren't looking for one jug and there's only enough for one day, so the jug lasts for eight days. Look at it in the book of Jewish law. They could have just taken the impure oil, which they had so much of, and used that until they could get a new fresh batch of, fresh, of, of pure oil. Says the rabbi, let's go on the bottom of page 13. We'll skip, we'll skip source 7. 
The Rebbe says the explanation is that God rewarded the Jewish people measure for measure. Since they had self-sacrifice beyond the letter of the law, God rewarded them with the miracle of finding a jug of pure oil that miraculously lasted for eight days. This was also beyond the letter of the law, as strictly speaking it would have been permissible to use impure oil under the circumstances. So says the Rebbe, the whole message of Hanukkah is, what we are celebrating is the insistence on not tolerating anything less than the best for the purity, for the sanctity, for the spirituality of the Jewish home, of the Jewish family, of Jewish women, and for our children. There's no room for compromise in what's necessary for the future of the Jewish people. The Maccabees weren't fighting for life. They were fighting for the spiritual integrity of their children, for the spiritual integrity for us, that we could be here today and we could still be proud as Jews, still being faithful to the, to the Torah, that is what the fight was about. And let's conclude on page 14. The Rebbe concludes, there is a lesson here for every Jew. In matters pertaining to the sanctity of the Jewish people, we shouldn't only do what we are allowed and obligated to do by the letter of the law. No, we must exert ourselves and act with super rational self-sacrifice beyond the letter of the law. God will reward us measure for measure and bless us with great abundance in our material and spiritual fears even when a more measured blessing would have sufficed. Oh, when we show God that we are going above and beyond, God will bless us also above and beyond. God could give us the blessings and, you know, yeah, okay, you know, it's enough blessings. He didn't have to give us more. But when we show God we're going beyond, God will also bless us beyond. So, dear friends, it's 12.01. Okay, we finished on time. <laughs> I originally said this class would be 45 minutes, but I think an hour is going to be, is going to be what, it, what it always going to be. But this is the, really the story of Hanukkah. We see that this is the intuition of the Jewish woman. The Rebbe speaks so much about this. The women are the ones who are given the gift by God to maintain the integrity, the sanctity, the holiness of the Jewish family. And we see this in the story of Hanukkah. They were the ones who inspired this attitude. They were the ones who inspired the men to, to, not, to not compromise, to not accept anything less than perfect when it comes to this issue the sanctity of the Jewish people. And the fight for Hanukkah, what Hanukkah reminds us, is the message of the light, the purity. That we need to fight for the purity of our children, for the purity of our people, within our own lives, within our community, and within our entire people as a whole. So dear friends, with that, I want to wish you all a wonderful Hanukkah. It should truly be a Yom Tev, a holiday of light, of holiness, and uh, it should, we should witness miracles today, just as we've experienced then, as we say when we light the menorah, May he also make miracles for us, just as he's done for our forefathers at this time. And uh, most importantly, that we should all light the menorah. It's so important. Every home needs to light the menorah. So make sure you have a menorah. Have it in your home. If you don't have a menorah, let me know. I have menorah kits with candles I could give to you. Tonight, before Shabbos, before sundown, so do it like before 4.45, light the menorah. Today is two candles. And don't forget, every single night for eight days, light the menorah. It's such an important holiday. And I want to wish you all a happy Hanukkah and a good Shabbos. L'chaim, l'chaim.